Let us go with the disclaimer. The views expressed in Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. We do want to protect everybody in the age of the NSA. So um, whatever you hear, take it with a grain of salt. And depending on the alcoholic content of the contributors, maybe even their own views are not their own. Yeah, Amber, Amber, Mar- Mount Gay rum today. In the heat. <laughs> not smart. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. James Gandolfini, Journey responds to the death of the Soprano star, and the boss plays him out with Born to Run. Justin Bieber and Scumbag Steve have the singing sensation's first Instagram video puts him in meme territory. On this week's Ask Alan Anything, I'll tell you about which man was the most awkward to interview and, and why I, I really owe Leonard Cohen an apology. Yeah, you really do. Art imitating life, how a ubiquitous iPhone ringtone became an actual song. Plus, a tragically hip fan wins a new book on following the iconic Canadian band. And the most played song at funerals. I have a fan who runs a funeral home. We should get him in on this. Does he put the fun back into funerals? You know, he's a really nice guy. (laughs) You seemed, if your Twitter feed was any indication, pretty crushed by the death of James Gandolfini. Well, you know, a lot of people were. If you had listened to talk radio anywhere across North America, you would have heard a lot of shows dedicated to his his death this week. That character changed the face of television in the 2000s. If we did not have a Tony Soprano, we wouldn't have a Dexter. We wouldn't have a Walter White. We wouldn't have a Don Draper. Uh, HBO wouldn't have ascended to the level that they're at right now. That opened the door for for Showtime and other networks to come along and invest money in uh, high-quality programming. So it's at the point now where cable TV is way better than what we're getting out of Hollywood as far as movies are concerned. And a lot of it goes back to The Sopranos. And if you're going to talk about The Sopranos, you have to talk about James Gandolfini. And I got tremendous, tremendous response from that. And the reason I I was sort of following it is because... um, I heard about his death as I was out walking the dog. I was checking my Twitter feed. And again, there's another example of how people are using services like Twitter and Facebook to keep up to date on what's happening in the world with things that they care about over traditional media. Now, was this a traditional media Twitter account that had informed you, or was it just the Twitterverse in general? Uh, It was the Twitterverse in general, which began it. Uh, The confirmations came very quickly. And then when I saw, I think it was either CNN or Fox News saying that HBO had confirmed that he had died, well then, at that point, I felt uh, safe to share it with everybody. You know, because Morgan Freeman, Nicolas Cage, and a whole host of others have died time and time again on Twitter. Yeah, so you have to be very careful about that. And I waited until there were multiple source confirmations, so... Meantime, Journey came out with a statement because Journey featured prominently in that famed final scene of The Sopranos. work today. All I'm doing is getting coffee and placing English phone calls. You may not realize it, but you are making contacts. It's an entry-level job. Buck up. Focus on the good times. Don't be sarcastic. Isn't that what you said one time? Try and remember the times that were good? I did? Yeah. Well, it's true, I guess. 
that Don't Stop Believing is one of the, I think, I think it is the most downloaded song ever on iTunes. One of my favorite parts about Don't Stop Believing is that the boy was from South Detroit. You know where South Detroit is? Windsor. Windsor. <laughs> and Steve Perry didn't know that when he had written it. He just said that South Detroit sounded like a rough part of Detroit. But in fact, because of the geography of it, it's Canada. Yeah. So you have the downtown, you have the river, and then you have Windsor. Uh, it's just like uh, back in the day of, uh, what was it, Paper Lace, the night Chicago died. And they talk about the east side of Chicago. Well, there is no east side of Chicago. It's Lake Michigan. Journey was quoted as saying, It's truly an honor to have been able to share one of the greatest moments ever in TV history with James Gandolfini. He was an amazing actor, taken way too young, and he'll be missed. Our condolences go out to his family. I couldn't believe that he was 51. You thought he was older? I somehow thought he was older, but... Let's think back to when The Sopranos debuted in 19, I guess it was 1999. Mm-hmm. He would have been 37 at that point playing Tony Soprano. And he I, he just struck me as being older than that. June 20th, 2013 at the Rico Arena in Coventry, England, Bruce Springsteen on his Wrecking Ball tour dedicated the Born to Run album, which he played in its entirety to James Gandolfini. Yeah, it's a nice salute to a guy from New Jersey and, of course, uh, little Stephen Played Silvio Dante in, in The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Actually, Silvio, uh, or sorry, um, uh, Stevie was was actually considered for the for the role of Tony Soprano. Oh, really? In, in the original auditions, but when he read for David Chase, he says, "You know, I, I, I'm not this guy. I, I, I'm not. I can be the consigliere. I can be a second in command, but I, I I can't carry the show." And so that's how they went and moved past him, cast him as Silvio, and then brought in James Gandolfini. Little Steven's a very good actor. Uh, and he was, you know, what's the name of that movie? Uh, he's in a, a Netflix production called Lillehammer, where he plays a gangster on the run in Norway. And he's, he's pretty good. A gangster on the run in Norway? They have gangsters like that in Norway? It's it's a very funny show. Lillehammer. Look it up on Netflix. Are you on the Instagram video? Did you download the update? Uh, you know, I've got, no. I, I You know you know who did update? Uh, uh, Bieber. Justin Bieber. So crazy news. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going. Crazy news, guys. There's, there's, there's video on Instagram. I, I, I don't know. He looks higher than a kite. He does. And what's interesting is that, um, oh boy, did I ever get hate for posting this? Yeah, but you only got hate from 13 year old girls. He's got the tattoos and he's got the hat on backwards and he just, you know, to me, he looked like a bit of a scumbag. And then I realized he really did look like something of a scumbag. So if you go to Know Your Meme and look up Scumbag Steve, you'll find this 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 picture meme of, of, of him. Uh, and they look a lot alike. And when you tweeted that... Guess who replied? Scumbag Steve. Yes! Actually, Steve himself, whose name is really Blake, had replied saying, he looks like a scumbag and I would know. <laughs> so, case closed. Exactly. I did a little digging into the real scumbagsteve.tumblr.com. And uh, Blake Boston, um, I got to tell you, I've been spending the past few days trying to get him on the show so we could maybe get some Justin Bieber advice from scumbag Steve himself, who was a 16-year-old at the time that the meme photo was distributed around the internet, him wearing the hat sideways and looking like a jerk. Uh, And then, of course, all these people started adding uh, text around the photo, and his mom apparently was just crushed at the time because she had taken a program at the community college on photography, and this ended up making it onto the internet. Uh, He was 15 at the time, he's 21 now, and he's a father. 
uh, and he's, he's all about family first. And so I've been trying to get the guy on. He's been ignoring me completely, which I think in unto itself is a scumbag move. <laughs> uh, but I got to tell you, he looks like the real thing. Usually these meme-type people are pure innocents who end up being eviscerated by the Internet, but that's not the case here. He quite frankly looks like a scumbag. And he would know. I love the internet. <laughs> you know what? I posted this. I get a tweet back from the real scumbag Steve. We have settled it. Justin Bieber in that first Instagram photo looks like a scumbag. Time now for Ask Alan Anything. Hey, this is Grant from Brampton. Alan, what's the most awkward or uncomfortable mu- musician interview you've ever had? I'll give you two. Uh, the first was with a British band called The Beautiful South. They had come over from England uh, they had missed their football match of the week, so they were a little annoyed. They had been drinking the entire time, and they were brought directly from the airport to the radio studio, and they did not want to talk. So this was a live interview, and I'm sitting in the studio, and there's uh, five of them, and they ring the studio, not one of them closer than five or six feet to any of the open microphones. All the questions I asked were either met with shrugs or very quiet one-syllable answers. <laughs> shrugs works really well on radio. The, the interview ended after 90 seconds. Get out. Did you kick them out? Did you say, get out of my studio? I did. Good for you. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Now I said, hey, thanks for coming. Shut off the mic and said, get out. These were the, the former members of the House Martins. Wasn't the beautiful South built around that? And a terrific band. Uh, but they were just surly and mean and douchebaggy that day. Now... On the other hand, I, I could be the same way. I thought I was being a smartass. So this is about 1988, uh, and Leonard Cohen launches this big comeback with an album called I'm Your Man. And for some reason, the, the alternative world at the time embraced him as an alternative artist. So he comes in. I, you know, he's the guy that wrote Suzanne, and, and that's, that's all I know. Um, and he was from Montreal. He's got an order of Canada. He's a big shot. Little did I know that people study his work at a PhD level. So he comes in, all Leonard Cohen, and he sits down in the studio, and he pulls out a pack of gitanes, and uh, the interview begins, and we're on the air. And I says, welcome to the radio station. Can I call you Lenny? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you do that? And he takes a big, big drag on the gitane, blows the smoke in my face and goes, don't. How could you not really know who Leonard Cohen is? I was a young dummy. I mean, what can I say? I thought I was being really hip and cool, and it turns out I was just being ass. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was the last time I I interviewed Leonard Cohen, too. Really? He hasn't accepted any more offers. What a surprise. Sorry, Leonard. I really am. I really am sorry. Ask Alan anything. Call area code 323-319-NERD now or visit geeksandbeats.com. You could even win some craptastic swag. I wonder what Apple thinks about this was your headline, and so I had to click it. Oh, this is the uh, the woman or the band from L.A. that has written a song using the marimba ringtone as a sample. You know what? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Here, play play a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. The band's called Mars Argo. Just just listen to this.
I don't like the marimba ringtone. I use it for the alarm on my phone, but I, I just don't. I can't see. I I can't be arsed to to, to find a, a, another ringtone from somewhere else. But I, I I hate that sound, and I hate when other. It's like the old Nokia ring. I hate that that ring. But I just haven't bothered to change it. I've played for you my ringtone, haven't I? Um, no. From the nineteen uh, seventies hit Emergency. No. Rampart 51. Exactly. Now, do you know what that that is? That was the siren that went off in the fire hall to announce a call, wasn't it? It was, and it's actually got a very specific tone to it. Uh, Back in the day when they used those, and maybe they still do, it was a box that would receive a coded message from, you know, 911. And those tones would change depending on the type of emergency they had to respond to. So while they were in the fire hall, when they would hear the sound, they go, okay, I know that that's a high-rise fire, or that's a heart attack, or what have you. And they would know what they would need to do even before they got into the vehicles. After the sound would fire, then you would hear a voiceover, which would give you more detail about it. So that's actually a real thing. I didn't know that. All I remember is uh, Randolph Mantooth and Kevin Ty. Randolph Mantooth, the best name in the business. Yeah, and the nurse was Dixie. Yep. That was a really big emergency fan back in the day. This is before... St. Elsewhere and, and ER and all those other shows. Mm-hmm. Squad 51 was a Dodge 1972 D300 truck. It was one of three different rescue squad vehicles they used at the time. Okay. Uh, and so there I am in the Home Depot uh, looking through something, and I usually have it on vibrate, but this time I didn't. And the thing went off, and two guys about my age in their mid-40s looked at me like, oh, my God, <laughs> where did you get that ringtone? Because it instantly brings you back to your childhood. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, that was the first show I th- saw anybody use a portable... Um, defibrillator? Uh, defibrillator, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. Uh, the iPhone Marimba ringtone and the Nokia sound, those are probably the two most identifiable in the universe. Yeah, probably. The other one being the standard Apple old-fashioned telephone ring. That's what I have on mine for for, you know, when you call me. Mm-hmm. Um again, I I just you know, when I when I'm on a bus or a subway and it rings, I I I don't know if it's me or if it's 100 other people around me, so I got to find something else. Yeah, so something that stands out. Yeah, I, I did. I downloaded one uh, Kirk to Enterprise, but that was just too geeky. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're a little embarrassing when that goes off in a, in a room full of suits. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I got rid of that one. So I got to try and find something. You know what? If you have a solution for my ringtone problem, I need two. I need one for general use, and I need one for my alarms. What do you got? And you need one for text messages as well. Oh, and I have that one. I use the, uh, the the Telegraph one. Speaking of trying to differentiate yourself, Deezer, which launched in Canada not too long ago, is now the new big thing in streaming music. Yeah, so let's bring in Justin Erdman. He is the managing director of Deezer Canada, which uh, is, is one of the company's newest territories. <laughs> These guys are everywhere. Justin, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, we're, we're dealing with a tech guy here because he's on a nice, clear... Uh, Skype connection. So Alan says that you are in more places around the world than any other streaming music service. How'd you pull that off? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, as of now, uh, officially, we're in 182 territories. 
And um, I think I think we just have a really great uh, um, uh, label relations team uh, out of Paris who have negotiated some uh, some real wizard like uh, global streaming rights. And um, it, you know, it's sort of a lateral uh, expansion method rather than going into uh, into uh, the markets that maybe people might expect us to go into first. We're going worldwide, and uh, we're going to go into some of those other key markets so when the time is right. Okay, how many territories did you say? 182, as of now, officially. Okay, the uh, the book of knowledge here, the uh, the uh, the Wikipedia says that there are only 196 independent countries in the world today, max. Yes, that sounds right to me. So we're 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 pretty much uh, almost there <laughs> in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know complete ubiquity. Uh, it's just going to take a little bit more time for us to get some of those final uh, territories in place. Well, who, where, where are you not? <laughs> uh, well, I guess the the, the marquee uh, places we're not uh, are places like the U.S., uh, China, Japan, India, um, and well, that, that, that's right. So, so you're 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 in East Timor, but you're you're not in the U.S. That that is that is probably correct. I haven't actually looked up uh, whether we're in East Timor officially, but I wouldn't I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised. What makes Deezer different than everyone else who's doing streaming music? I think the simple answer is that um, we have a very strong editorial focus, and that means we have local teams on the ground in um, in I think it's over two dozen markets, um, and we're actually you know human beings who love music and who care a lot about it and who care about. You know the local fans and the local artists and the local you know people who work in the business, um, and and the reality is that that people listen to music very differently from territory to territory. How so? Well, even in Canada, you have uh, English Canada versus French Canada, and you'll find that when you cross the border uh, between Ontario and Quebec, um, you will find artists there that we haven't heard of here, um, and it's great. It's a very healthy francophone music business. Um, and when it comes to Deezer in Canada, we're very uh, conscious of that. And so we actually have, uh, we're building a team. Um, we've just, you know, had our first person start in Montreal to really take, to tackle that market head on and to say, we mean business in both official languages and we're not paying short shrift to, uh, to either one. So we're seeing, seeing a, a proliferation of streaming music services all over the world. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Are, is it, is it a land rush right now? For, for ears and minds and adoption, or is it better to have many choices out there right now so the general public gets used to the fact that these services exist? Well, I think you actually nailed, uh, nailed it right there. What we're aiming for right now is that most of the people who have, uh, who have made the switch from buying CDs to buying um, albums and tracks uh, through some of the download services, we now have to educate them on the fact that streaming is here uh, it's awesome. It's super uh, um, easy to use. Um, but, you know, they just haven't gotten to that, that sort of mindset yet. So I actually, you know, encourage uh, all comers and I say, uh, you know, the rising tide floats all the boats. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, really, it's an education process over the next year or two, I would guess, until we hit uh, enough of a critical mass that, that it takes on a life of its own and people are excited and telling their friends and then we have a real, a really great market. Uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, hopefully a competition will drive innovation, and, and that's good for everybody. Well, what about the Darwinism element to it? You know, how do you ensure that the fittest survive and that you are the fittest? You probably have to consider a few things. One is, are we treating, um, are we treating the technolo- technology platform appropriately? Are we making sure that it is, um, it is the easiest to use service that's available on the most devices? So we want to make sure that wherever you happen to want to listen to music, you can. 
Um, and Deezer has made a really good point of that. We're available on you know, every smartphone platform, on smart TVs, on you know, wireless hi-fi devices, in car. I mean, you name it, we're there. And you know, as soon as they make, start making music listening available on refrigerators and, and, and uh, you know, uh, lawn equipment, uh, you know, we'll be there too. <laughs> Um, so there, so there's that, and and um, you know, uh, making as much music available. Really, you want to make sure that when somebody goes to listen to their favorite artist, that it's that it's available. How much of a barrier do you think the cost of data on mobile devices is for Canadians? That is a bit of a loaded question. Uh, uh, obviously, we have um, we have a few incumbent uh, wireless companies who may not have. Um, the sort of market forces being placed upon them to bring down data rates to some of the other um, to, to some other countries' levels, um, and I think that probably contributes. Um, you seem to be very diplomatic in, in this answer. Is that because there is a relationship that you have to have with the carriers? It sounds like you, like you could eviscerate them for having only a one gigabyte data plan, but you're not. <laughs> I think eviscerating anybody at this stage of the game, especially when they are um, they are the the last mile. I mean, when it, when it's accessing our services on mobile, it's it's our it's the carriers who are going to be providing that that access. So I, I think eviscerating is probably a, a dangerous uh, a business tactic. What I will say is that um, we are looking at ways to form closer partnerships, frankly, with the carriers, uh, with certain carriers, so that data usage becomes less of an issue when it comes to listening to music. I think that um, having high data rates, um, while it might serve uh, you know, carriers' uh, business objectives in the short term, it actually prevents people from, um, from exploring data services that they might really enjoy and be happy to use more data for. Um, you know, but this is, this is an ongoing discussion and they have to balance their, their sort of business model. So I, I don't want to tell them how to run their business, uh, that it's, you know, far be it for me to even make any kind of suggestion on that. Uh, but you know, some of the, some of the ways we've done it in other territories, um, uh, are, are, you know, deals with carriers that have, um, perhaps not eliminated, but reduced the concern about data usage. And that's what we will try to do in Canada as well. Fair enough. Before we let you go, Justin Bieber, any advice to the young songstress from Canada? <laughs> um, She's been in the news lately. I I think that um, he is a uh, he is a young talent. Um, in my previous life at Universal, he he was responsible for uh, for lots of great um, marketing campaigns that I worked on. And um, I wish him the best of luck. And I honestly think that um, that new artists are the lifeblood of uh, streaming services because, <laughs> be, simply because um, uh, it will encourage more young people to take up um, apps and services like ours. And that's what we need is is mass adoption uh, and people talking about it. And uh, it's a brighter music future for everybody. I really do believe that. You're a believer. <laughs> I think it's safe to say I'm a believer. Great having you with us, Justin. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Justin. Very good. Thanks, guys. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. 
So we have yet another contest winner. We had uh, Joshua Cloak on not too long ago with uh, his big fan book dedicated to the Tragically Hip. We were giving away three. We have one additional one to give away. This one goes to George from Mississauga. George, thanks for calling through to 323-319-NERD and uh, giving us your info. You are the third winner of The Big Thing. You know what we don't have this week? Is? A co-producer. We don't have a co-producer. Not this week. We're flying solo this week. All right, so we're operating at a loss. This is bad. Uh, we could uh, we could use somebody to help us out, help pay for this this massive enterprise, and uh, in return, do we give them anything? We give them credit on the big show as uh, being a co-producer, which means that you don't have to do anything other than open your wallet wide. You go to uh, geeksandbeats.com, and you click on the co-producer credit option. And just like a real Hollywood deal, all you need to do to brag about being a co-producer is open your wallet. You donate 25 bucks to the big show. We make you a co-producer. You don't actually have to do anything about it. You get to hear your name on the world's most popular podcast, impress your friends, and... You could put it on a resume if you want. So here's the problem. It's it's officially summertime now, and uh, I'm noticing with my website that traffic is is plummeting, especially on nice days. If you look at a you know a general weather forecast for North America, you'll see that things will not be very good on the traffic counter on days where where you have big high pressure systems. Meantime, uh, you talk about the history of Toronto's legendary Massey Hall. Yeah, I would suggest that uh, people check, uh, I guess we can, ha- well, they'll be in the show notes. Uh, there's a blog TO has written a, a very good history of, of Massey Hall, which is probably the most iconic live music venue in, in Canada. I've sung there. You sang there? I, I was a St. Michael's Choir School boy in my youth, and they would do the Christmas concerts, and every year uh, we would sing at Massey Hall. And what a remarkable experience it is to look out into that massive crowd. I was the kid who was charged with the responsibility one year of sneaking off stage before the end uh, to grab the giant bouquet of flowers for the conductor at the time, Miss Mann, M-A-N-N, who had a, uh, a spanking ruler, one of those massive paddles that would sit on her desk that was engraved with her name. And this was back when you could actually hit kids in school. Yeah. And uh, so I snuck off at the allotted time, the time I was told to sneak off, at this verse, sneak off, and I grabbed the flowers. And by the time I made it back, my uh, fellow students were so efficient at getting off stage that I missed it. And I walked onto the stage and no one was there. Ooh, but there was a full audience. And there was a full audience. And I had to walk from one side of the stage all the way to the other, holding Ooh. this bouquet and give it to her behind the scenes. That is one of the nerdiest walks of shame ever. I was crushed. The eight-year-old in me, devastated. Oh. Still haven't gotten over it, clearly. Yeah, and that, sadly, is not in Blog TO's History of Massey Hall. That should be in there. <laughs> But you actually stood on that stage, too. I did. I was, oh, God, uh, as an MC for a lot of shows, introducing bands that uh, the radio station, CFL on the Edge, would have presented there. So I'd say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Stranglers or something like that. Wasn't the Stranglers the first band you ever introduced? Yeah, I think it was, I want to say March 1987. I think that's the first time I ever stood on the stage at Massey Hall. And then fast forward to November of 2011, and I was performing with William Shatner in his uh, memoir play called, uh, not memoir presentation called How Time Flies. So that was really kind of cool because I, like, I, had, I, had I had a dressing room. <laughs> you were a performer. I was a performer, just like you. Well, 
Only I, I, I didn't have to worry about flowers for, for Miss Man. Man, oh man, to this day, scarred. Yeah, Shat didn't want flowers. Well, what would Shat have wanted? Green tea. Really? That was his thing? Yep, that was his thing. Green tea. And then after we were finished at the theater, it would be time for scotch and or beer. What makes Massey Hall that iconic to you? Because to me, it is the fact that it has been around as long as it has. It's more than 119 years old. And as a matter of fact, when they had first built it, what they had done was they had these beautiful stained glass windows. And as the carriage traffic increased through the late 1800s into the 1900s, they actually had to brick them up. Because you could hear the noise from the street while you were listening to the performance. There are still stained glass windows in there that you can only see from the inside because they kept them on the inside. They just bricked up the outside. That's interesting. Now, I know what they're doing is the biggest renovation in the hall's history. And it's going to include uh, expanding the hall because the backstage area is really, really cramped and tiny and horrible and awful, especially for load in, load out. And uh, there's going to be a condo development attached to the back end, which will also front on the Young Street, that's going to use two ancient banks that have been lying uh, empty since uh, eight, uh, 1987. So it's, it's going to be an interesting couple of years for, for Massey Hall. It was completed in 1894. It cost a whopping $152,000 at the time <laughs> that Hart Massey of Massey Harris, your, your Massey Ferguson uh, tractor company, yep. Hart Massey was the man who opened his wallet to make it happen. Well, isn't that fascinating? I've lived a life that's full, traveled each and every highway. More than this, I did it my way. What song would you like played at your funeral? Yeah, this is a question that I ran across online. Some site was listing possible selections. And I thought about it for a while. I have no idea really what I would want. So let's just throw it open to people. What's the phone number? 323-319-NERD. Give us a call. Tell us what song you would like to have played at your funeral. Apparently, the most popular song to have played at a funeral is, no surprise, it's Frank Sinatra's My Way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is boring. It is dull. Okay, let me just... I had some other people give me some ideas. <laughs> so you put this together and it didn't occur to you that maybe someone might ask you one day what yours would be? Oh, I know what I said. I said uh, a track called The Hell of It from the Phantom of the Paradise soundtrack from 1974. That's really obscure. Why? Well, it, you have to listen to the lyrics of it. Well, let's listen to the lyrics of it. Good for nothing, bad in bed. Nobody likes you and you better off dead. Goodbye, <laughs> goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye, goodbye. Good for nothing, bad in bed, you're better off dead, goodbye. Yeah. So other people have suggested uh, going underground by the jam. Money Python, always looking on the bright side of life. Yes, that'd be a good one. Ruby Tuesday from the Rolling Stones. Funeral for Friend Elton John, that's a standard sort of one. Uh, wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Interesting. I think anything by the Joy Division would probably work well. Uh, okay, Enjoy Yourself in the Specials, which I like. That's a very good one. Listen to that one. That's a, I can't remember who did the original, but the, the, uh, Enjoy Yourself is a cover. I think for me it would probably be something from The Cure. However, that's really depressing. And since I'm not there and I don't care anymore, play whatever you want. Somebody says Hell Awaits by Slayer. 
Yeah, that's something your widow, I'm sure, would be pleased to have play. Everybody in black, that going on. So, yeah, what do you have? What, what do you got? Uh, I would be very interested in what we should maybe put together, like a top 100 list or something, of the greatest songs being played at funerals. Top 100? You think you've got 100 people listening to this? Let's find out. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.